Now feel free to have a seat. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, continuing to march through this book, uh, learning great and glorious things from the Acts of the Saints, really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But while you're turning there, I do, uh, I have a question for you guys this morning, and actually it's the uh, title of my sermon, and that is, uh, what's in a name? What's, what's in a name? Um, maybe even uh, a few kids in here, I don't know, I don't have any of our older kids in here this morning, but uh, have you heard this story, uh, have you heard this uh, phrase before, what's in a name? Uh, do you know where that's from? Do any of the adults know? What's in a name? Where is it? Romeo and Juliet. Very well done, I think. Uh, we're not as literary, uh, you know, uh, literarily, we're more literarily challenged as evidenced by my stumbling over my words this morning. Uh, it is from Romeo and Juliet. What's in a name? Is, uh, Juliet in Acts, uh, uh, not in Acts, but in Acts uh, 2, uh, then scene 2, Juliet says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And what she's saying is, of course, that she's in love with this man that has the wrong last name. She's, uh, she's a Capulet, and she is in love with a Montague. And this, uh, this thing is, seems superficial to her. She's, what's in a name? Uh, even if we called a rose something else, uh, it would still smell the same. The substance wouldn't change of course. And so uh, the, the reason why it sounded familiar to you to begin with is because it's a fairly famous question. What is it that is in a name? And of course, Juliet is technically right. Uh, what uh, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell is sweet, but the play is actually not about the superficiality of the name Montague or Capulet. She knows, and the answer to her question is that there is something very deeply rooted in the names that we have something very deep. There's this blood feud between these families. Uh, there's this star-crossed love that is there. And the truth is, is that our names are right at the heart of our identity. That's the truth. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, man, I wonder if any substance of my life would be different if I had gone with my middle name uh, or if I had been named something else? Here, here's a weird fact that is true. Uh, men named Dennis are disproportionately uh, drawn to the occupation of dentistry. There's just something about their name that like, uh, just always is reminding them of something about dentistry, and they're just more likely to go into that field. It's just kind of interesting. Is there something really in the name? Of course there is. There's something deep. God, when he created the first man named Adam, he actually named him, and he named him with a purpose. When he uh, plucked from obscurity out of just his grace and his love, Abram, he actually changed his name. He didn't leave it the same. Uh, God is known very often as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There is something of substance to a name. And likewise, as parents, really throughout human history, we have named our children with the hopes that the name's meaning would guide and kind of define and maybe even characterize something of their lives. Maybe you uh, chose a name that way. Sawyer and I didn't really. We chose names that we just kind of liked, but it, was, it felt significant to name a child. It's a really big deal. We see this, of course, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 1, that an angel appears to Mary and tells her that she shall conceive a child, a special child, and she shall name him Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who is Father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This, This is the story of perhaps the greatest naming of a child that ever was. Because you have heard this name, Jesus. Two millennia after it's happened, uh, people around the world know this name, Jesus. It may be different from one culture to another, but it's the most famous name ever, Jesus. So what is it that's in a name we discover quite a lot? And this morning, what we'll read in Acts chapter 19 is that there is power in the name of Jesus. So that's what we're going to discover this morning in Acts uh, chapter 19. And if you would, uh, read with me. If you've been paying attention, we've been taking things a chapter at a time, but I have not always been reading the whole chapter. That's for a purpose. It's, a, it's laborious. It's a little hard to actually read through a whole chapter of Scripture in one setting. But here's what I want you to know. It's important. Scripture actually tells us not to neglect the public reading of the Word. And so this morning, I want you to even consider that the sermon is the text. And as I read through chapter 19, be looking and discovering with me, where is it talking about the power that is in the name of Jesus? Verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjourn you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found out uh, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to incru- increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, He himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the worksmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we derive our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. But some cried out one thing and some the other, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that this, these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have, uh, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. So there is something in a name, 
There's power in this name. There's power in the name of Jesus. But what we're going to discover throughout this long text, and we won't be drilling in quite as intensively as we normally do, but what we'll discover is that there is power in the name of Jesus first to save souls and cities. There is also power in the name of Jesus over sickness and spirits. And there is power in the name, finally, of Jesus that upends our social securities. So power in the name of Jesus to save souls and cities over sickness and spirits and to upend social securities. That's what we're going to discover today. And and what we need before we get there is a little bit of context. The city of Ephesus was a port city in Asia. It was a major trade route. Culture was very, very different from the high-minded Athenians of a few weeks ago. This ancient city uh, would have been primarily there in the midst of all of this trade, uh, and, and commerce would have been a big deal. But the bigger deal in this city would have been the temple of Artemis that we heard about in the passage. But it's not just something that we need to like, oh, the temple was there. This was significant. This was one of the seven great wonders of the world. Maybe you remember hearing about this. The hanging tower, uh, gardens of Babylon and uh, the pyramids. Uh, I was reading an ancient writer who said that they had seen all of them. Had seen the hanging gardens, had seen, uh, had seen the Colossus there at, uh, what is it, Rhodes? I, is it Rhodes? Yeah. So had seen all of it. And his estimation was that the most impressive of all of the things wasn't the pyramids. Pretty impressive. It was the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis had taken 120 years to build. It was made of solid marble. There had been a couple of previous ones. They had been destroyed in floods. And the final one that they built over the course of 120 years was bigger than a football field. It was significantly bigger than like a football field. And it was made of these gigantic columns, two rows of columns around the outside and this massive structure for a roof. And there it was in the middle of the city. And people would have traveled, not would have, they did travel from all over the world to come there to worship. This city of Ephesus uh, would have been bustling. It was pretty great. It was a big city. It was uh, uh, people that were traveling there wouldn't have just brought uh, wouldn't have just brought commerce there. They would have come there uh, to worship. They would have come there for pleasure as well. Uh, the temple uh, of Artemis was said to have had one thousand temple prostitutes there. So this is uh, a city that you can kind of think of as a, a sort of Vegas. It wasn't like, it wasn't a high-minded place the way that Athens was a couple of weeks ago. It was a place where uh, people came and just exchanged. There was a lot of debauchery there. It was a city that God had a plan to save. This city, we will find, uh, was built around this idea of Artemis. They took their identity from the name of Artemis, and all of this was about to change because there was power in the name of Jesus to save souls and cities. So uh, this thing that happened really starts off very small, and then it moves out not just to the entire city, but really we're told in this passage to all of Asia. Verse 1, look with me here. We see that Paul arrives in Ephesus and comes across a really small contingent of disciples. We're told that there's only really 12 of them, but we're told that they're not uh, disciples the way that we think that they're uh, disciples. Uh, Paul perceives something in them and asks them a probing question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? He's saying, there's something a little different. uh, You're not Jews, 
but I'm perceiving that there's something that you're not fully Christian either. You're not followers of Jesus. They, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I said, we didn't even know that there was such thing as the Holy Spirit. Oh, well, what were you baptized into then? Well, we were baptized into the baptism of John. Uh, well, no, that was a baptism of repentance. And what John was saying is that there was one coming named Jesus who was going to fulfill all of these things. And so what's happening here is Trinitarian. You find a small contingent of disciples that believed in Yahweh. They believed in God the Father, but they had not heard of the Holy Spirit, and they had not been baptized into the name of Jesus. They didn't even know that John the Baptist was proclaiming and bringing and preparing a way for the name of Jesus. And here Paul is with the great privilege of saying, you need to know a name. You need to know the name of Jesus. This small contingent of people uh, received this baptism of John, but it was a baptism of repentance. Uh, what does that mean? It means that when John was kind of preparing away, he was telling Jewish people, listen, this thing that you always did um, of, of moving unclean Gentiles, and when they wanted to become Jews, we would take them out and we would ceremonially dunk them in water so that they would sim symbolically become clean. They would be, it was part of becoming Jewish. What the scandal of John was that he came along and said, you need a baptism too. That would have been scandalous to Jews. He would have said, you are the ones that are unclean. You need to know that there is a Messiah that is coming. You are the one who needs to be washed in water. You need to be reborn. So the, the baptism of John was something a little different than the baptism that we receive as a, uh, uh, as a symbol of our following of Jesus today. It was just different. It was proclaiming that there was one who was coming and these hadn't received it. John the Baptist, we're told in verse 4, uh, told people to believe in the one who is coming after him. And now Paul says, that's Jesus. On hearing this, pay attention to this. On hearing this, they were baptized. What were they baptized into? Into the name of the Lord Jesus. On hearing this, they were uh, obedient and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. What we need to get out of all of this is that the name of Jesus has power. The name of Jesus has the power to change souls. And everything changes for these 12 men. So it starts off small. It's just a group of 12 people. The way had been prepared for Paul. This must have been really exciting for Paul because he, he didn't have to go into the synagogue and reason with these guys. They, they knew that something was missing. And Paul gets to proclaim this name and 12 men are baptized here. But we're going to see here in just one moment that it doesn't remain 12 men. Verses 8 through 10, if you'll skim them really quickly, Paul stays there and speaks boldly. What we find is, is that Paul is there preaching. Here's what you need to know, okay? In, in our church's history, we have upheld a lot of different things as a way of discipling people into faith. There is no way to read Acts without understanding that it is the preaching of Jesus' name that changes lives. Do you know this? And just in case you think that I'm talking about myself, I'm not. Speaking boldly the name of Jesus is what all of us are called to do. We're called to preach Christ crucified in his resurrection. Preaching changes lives. Not, not, to, not my preaching, not what I'm doing up here only. You're preaching. Are you a preacher? 
God has given you an identity in Jesus Christ as a proclaimer of good news. Maybe you didn't know it until this morning, but you are a preacher. And there's no way to read Acts without knowing and understanding that there is something that Paul is doing here that we should all be doing, and that's speaking boldly. Look at these verses. He doesn't just speak boldly. He also reasons and persuades. There's not just preaching. There's also apologetics. We are all to be ready at a moment to give a defense of our faith. And he doesn't do it for just a short time or when we are experiencing some amount of fruit from this. What does it say? It says that he stayed there, verse 10, two years. (laughs) Pay attention to this. I mean, this is crazy. In two years' time, who does it say heard the gospel? Don't rely on me. Look at the passage. Two years, what happens? This continued for two years so that all the residents of Ephesus? No, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The name of Jesus in verse 8, the kingdom of God in verse 8 is proclaimed to all of Asia in two years' time. And it has the power to save souls, not just of 12 men, not just of the city, but an entire region. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I just, I want to bring this into today's terms. Can you imagine that the city church made its goal that all like 875 or 950,000 people that are here in Fort Worth were to hear the name of Jesus over the next two years? Can you imagine that kind of undertaking? Because that's exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 19. I wonder this morning, do you believe that this is possible? Do you believe that that is how God intends to advance his gospel and make disciples, that we be speaking boldly, preaching the gospel, the name of Jesus, that we be uh, reasoning and persuading people in our midst, that we might be uh, uh, bringing an apologetic forth to this city so that everybody hears the name of Jesus? Do you want that to happen? I want that to happen. Does it seem like an insurmountable goal? I'll be honest with you. That seems like an insurmountable goal. But we've been talking over the last few weeks. I've said, hey, what is my goal for City Church? It's just saying the name of Jesus. And, and, And I know that there is something in that that those who are kind of like, hey, that seems like too simplistic. Just saying the name of Jesus. It's pretty simple. It might be too simplistic. That's what I want for our church to do. Just spend some time saying the name of Jesus to the people that are around you. Don't don't just shout Jesus' name at them. Tell them what you're learning about this Savior of yours. But we don't just see that there is power in the name of Jesus to save the souls and save the cities and save the regions that we live in the midst of. It also says that there is a power in the name of Jesus over sickness in spirits. It says they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. When, when Paul goes in after the baptism and lays hands on them, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit and something incredible happens. They start speaking in tongues and they start prophesying. Now, here's the truth. When we talk about speaking in tongues, when we talk about prophecy, we see that there is an evidence of the power of the name of Jesus. But we also get a little uncomfortable 
What is it that's happening here? Is there like a second baptism? Did these uh, uh, believers that were there, like, did Paul come and like give them a second baptism or like an anointing of the Spirit? Did I get that? Do I have that? If I didn't receive that, is there something wrong with me? Am I not in the faith? Am I not a believer? All of these questions start to percolate when we see things like this, when we see the evidence of the power that is in the name Jesus, and we start comparing it in with our own lives. Is this normal? Is this something that we should expect? Should I be able to speak in tongues? If I don't, am I a believer? Now, first of all, there's something that we need to understand about uh, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And, and that is that for those of you who say, God doesn't do that, can't do that anymore, you need to understand something. God can do all of his holy will. God can do all of his holy will. If the Spirit descended on us this morning and there was a speaking of tongues and a prophesying, it would not be something that was apart from God's ability or will. But, but let's be honest, though, too, with that. It might be within God's ability, but is it something that we regularly experience? And for most of us in this room, I would say most of us don't experience that on a daily basis. Maybe you've never had it. I've never really had any interaction with uh, what I think is being spoken of here. I've never had an experience like this. Is there something wrong? Is there something broken? I want you to know that I do believe in the sign of the tongues and prophecy. I believe that it really did happen. I believe that it really did happen the way that it says it here in Acts. But you know what that also means? It also means that it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's not normative. You might be tempted in the reading of Acts to go through the book of Acts and go, man, where are all of these signs? I see all of these believers interacting in supernatural, extraordinary signs all the time. And what I would beckon you to do is actually go back and read Acts. Because the sign of tongues and the sign of prophecy only happens three times in the entire book. It is extraordinary. It is not normative, even for Paul. These healings that we're about to read about is not something that normally happens every day. These miraculous signs are extraordinary. Paul has now gone into many cities where there was no healing, where there were no tongues, there was no prophecy. He's gone into many of those cities without that extra measure of grace and that extra measure of authentication. But this is the third of the three times that we see it in Acts. We see it in Judea. I'm going to mention that very specifically. In Acts 2 in Judea, we see the falling of the Spirit at Pentecost. And there is just crazy things that happen. People start speaking in languages that they don't even know, and people are understanding and hearing that in them. And what is God doing? He's doing something there in Judea. He's authenticating his message and his messenger. Why? Because it was Jesus that promised the Holy Spirit. And what God is doing is he's authenticating Jesus, and he's doing it there in Judea. But there's a second time, and it's in Acts uh, chapter 10, and it happens in Samaria, that there is another pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, the gospel comes the first time to the Gentiles. This was something brand new. It was a new people group that the gospel was going to. And what happens there is that Peter, God's messenger, speaks boldly the gospel. And then all of a sudden, the spirit falls in an extra measure on Gentiles for the first time. And there is tongues and prophecy. What God is doing in that specific instance is saying, I'm doing this. 
I'm going to put a seal, a mark of authentication. If you have any question, any worry that the Lord is not in this, that there is something demonic about what's going on here, or that uh, Gentiles couldn't possibly be included in God's plan like the Jews are, know and understand this. I'm going to authenticate my messenger, Peter, and I'm going to authenticate the message of the gospel. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 10. And here, in Acts chapter 19, we see this place, this multicultural place that is just at the center of the world in a lot of ways, where there is port city and trade routes and there's uh, idol worship and everything else. And Paul proclaims the gospel to these people that had not yet believed and the spirit descends on them. And then there's an authentication of the messenger, Paul, and an authentication of the message of the name and power of Jesus. So if you have those wrestlings in your heart where it's just like, man, I see all the time these amazing, extraordinary things that are happening in the Scripture, and that is so far away from my experience of my faith, I want you just to be encouraged to know that's not something that's ordinarily happening. It's not, and if you just look at Scripture, it is not something that is normative. It is something that is extraordinary. By the way, I mean, our church is a place where we can have uh, nuanced, different views. We can have these discussions. We can talk about it. I want for this to be a place where if you're experiencing some sign gift, you want to come and tell the elders about it, we're going to hear you. We're going to listen to you. There's more glory for God. I I want more, all of the glory that God gets. But we are going to be open to that, but also cautious about seeing the ways that it's been misused, mishandled in the church. We are very open. God can do all of his holy will, but we're also going to be cautious. We're going to put it up against scripture and say, those kinds of things are pretty extraordinary. Do we see a reason why God might be authenticating a messenger or a message today? We're going to be cautious about it. Is that okay? We're going to do that as a body of believers. So we see this happen three times in Acts We see it going from Judea to Samaria out into the ends of the earth. Did you catch what God is doing here? He's showing that uh, he's authenticating the completion and the advancement of the Great Commission. These fallings of the Spirit are an authentication of what God is doing in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Praise be to God. We see God's accomplishing all of his great commission, and he's authenticating uh, this amazing and powerful name of Jesus. He's authenticating the power that is in the name of Jesus. He's authenticating the legitimacy of Paul to proclaim the power of Jesus. And so we see in verse 11 just an extension of all of this. And God was doing what? Extraordinary miracles. So they were not an ordinary. Verse 11 tells us and makes this point. God was doing the extraordinary miracles by the, uh, by the hands of Paul so that at even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So though extraordinary, does this sound like a familiar pattern to you? Do you remember seeing this in other places in Scripture? This looks like Jesus. I wonder if you remember in Luke chapter 8, verse 45, uh, uh, Jesus has this throngs of people that are around him, and it, it gets where this crowd is kind of unmanageable, and they're all trying to get a part of Jesus, and they're pressing in and amongst him, and Paul, is, uh, sorry, Jesus is right at the center of it, and the disciples are kind of around him, and he stops in verse 45, and he goes, who did that? Who, 
Who touched me? Somebody touched me. Who was it that touched me? Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Let us not be totally skeptical of healings because God does heal through Jesus. We're seeing Paul have these handkerchiefs carried away and healing the sick. Something really amazing was happening here. And it was all not meant to point back to Paul. It was meant to point back to the powerful name of Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who came. He was the one who, uh, in, uh, in, in Luke, is sitting there like just marching along and somebody is just healed by their faith to like reach out and touch the hem of his garment. And when he spins around and everybody goes, hey, it wasn't me, and the disciples even try to make an excuse like, Jesus, there's tons of people here, lots of people touching you. There's one woman who's kind of exposed. Everybody goes, it wasn't me, and she goes, it was me. And he looks at this blessed woman and he just goes, that, that thing that you needed healing from, that uh, gushing of blood that you had, what happened to it? She goes, it was immediately healed. Jesus heals. The name of Jesus heals. So why don't we see this? Uh, why don't we see this today? Uh, or maybe the right question is, why don't we see this in a way that isn't like televised and like, uh, you know, people with weird colored hair saying weird and strange things? Why is it that we don't see healing happen in today's age? And what I would tell you is we do. I might surprise you. We do see healings today. The church experiences healings all the time. And just in case you're, you're worried like, man, uh, this is getting kind of uncomfortable. Our, our elders go, not right now, to the hospital. But we, if you are sick, call us. We want to come to your house. We want to pray for you. We want to go to the hospital. We want to pray for you. We pray all the time with faith that God would heal people. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he uses modern medicine to do it. Sometimes it takes a little while, but he heals, and it's no less miraculous. But that's actually not even what I'm talking about. Let me ask you this. This woman who came along the way and had this uh, blood, this discharge of blood that had not been cured for years, over a decade. Can you even imagine? And she's healed in this moment. That's pretty miraculous. But she'll die. She did die. We, we don't... We don't know that. We didn't see that in Scripture, but we're pretty confident that this gal was healed temporarily, and then she died. But every day we see people coming into the kingdom of God healed in a spiritual way, healed in an everlasting way. Beloved, we do see Jesus heal. Jesus' name has the power to heal, and it's no less extraordinary. In fact, it is more extraordinary, the healing of a soul. So when you pray, I want you to pray with faith. I want you to pray with faith that Jesus does and can heal people of physical ailments. But I want you to be encouraged this morning. Before we even started the service, we rounded up the people that were here and we said, hey, let, let, just name somebody that needs Jesus. We're going to pray for them in this moment. We just sat for five minutes just praying for people that needed to know the power of the name of Jesus. And I believe that God is going to use the power of the name of Jesus to heal them infinitely, forever, eternally in their souls.
I believe that. Are you praying for your friends, your family members that need to know Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus can heal their souls? If we're being honest, sometimes we don't. We forget. We think that people are too far gone. We don't consider uh, the sin that uh, was and is and might have been in our own hearts and how far divergent we were from God and that Jesus closed that gap and brought us immediately into his kingdom. That's what Jesus did. Jesus heals. He heals and he casts out evil spirits. It says this, evil spirits came out of them. This didn't go unnoticed, by the way. The sons of Sceva uh, are there, and they think, hey, that seems pretty uh, great. We're getting paid for these exorcisms. Not sure if they were real exorcisms or if they were just, uh, you know, practicing something that was like a little bit of a sleight of hand. But they realize, man, this Paul guy is going around using the name of Jesus to cast out demons. That's kind of our gig. Maybe we need to adapt and adopt and start using this name. So what do they do? They go into this man who is filled with an evil spirit. Seven of them go, and they say, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims, and the demon answers them. By the way, if a demon answers you, it's probably not going to go well for you. The, the demon responds back. Who knows how, I mean, just uh, horrific hearing this would have been. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And these exorcists who wanted to use the power of the name of Jesus without knowing the power of Jesus personally, they hear these words, Jesus, I know. But I don't know you. And this one demon-possessed man leaps on seven of them, masters them all, and what does he do? He overpowers them. They don't have the power of the name of Jesus. They're trying to misuse and misguide. They're trying to twist and distort. And what happens is, is that we can know for sure that what James says in chapter 2, verse 9 is true. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Why? Because demons are subject to the power that is in the name of Jesus. You, as a Christian, indwelled by the Holy Spirit with the words of Jesus in your mouth, with the power of the name of Jesus written on your heart, have nothing to fear from demons. But woe to you. Woe to you if you think that you can play with demonic things and not get torn up, wounded, leave naked bleeding. That's what's going to happen to your soul without Jesus if you're coming up against evil spirits, but not if you're under the banner of the powerful name of Jesus. Verse 17, it says that when that happened, when these guys got lit up by this demon, what happens? It becomes known to all a few people? No, everybody heard about this. It became known to all. Fear fell upon them. And then look, look, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. When people saw that there was power in the name of Jesus to heal souls and heal cities, when they saw that there was power in the name of Jesus to uh, heal people and to cast out spirits, and that you were actually in danger if you were not underneath the banner of the powerful name of Jesus, 
everybody started to talk about it. And everybody fell in fear. And everybody extolled the name of Jesus. And when that happens, something has to change. Something has to change. The, the last thing, and it, I'll, I'll uh, admit something to you. Everything was working out with the S's, so I just named it like uh, Social Security. And you might be thinking, like, I pay that in my checkbook. That, that's not the kind of Social Security that I'm talking about. The last thing that we discover is that there is power in the name of Jesus that upends our Social Security. Have you thought about that word, the Social Security? It, it's the things that we together as people find our security in that society is taking their comfort, making their money in, putting their trust in. That power of the name of Jesus saves souls and cities, it heals sickness and spirits, but it affects everything. Verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Why? Because they had spent years in the occult. They spent years in the occult. And a number of them who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of awe because they were worthless to them. For a city whose economy and social orders were built around the occult and around the worship of Artemis, this was a huge stinking deal. People traveled from all over the world to worship at this temple, to trade and to buy silver shrines we're about to talk about here in just a moment. Uh, they came here to purchase sex. They came here to please their flesh. That's what they were doing in Ephesus. And when the city changes, the social security of that city is going to change for its inhabitants. And it says that they burned all of these occultic books. But before doing that, they just made sure that it was really, really valuable. So they tallied it all up. It was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Just to be clear, just to put that in today's terms, that's as if we went into our city and said, hey, your idolatry is costing you your soul. And everybody says, my phone is costing me my soul. The things that I love are costing me my soul. The house that I love is uh, costing me my soul. And they say, what do I need to do? You need to get rid of it. You need to burn it. And then in this church, in this moment, we said, there's power in the name of Jesus. And a whole bunch of people rounded up the things that were taking them away from Jesus and came and burned $1.3 million worth of stuff. That's what it would be like. That if everybody like came in and said, I want to follow Jesus, I believe that there's power in the name of Jesus, here's my stuff, let's set it on fire, and it was worth $1.3 million, that would be a pretty big deal. The makeup of the city is changing because of the power of the name of Jesus. So what happens? What happens when that social security, that social order is put into danger? There's so many ways by uh, there's so many ways that this has application to us today. So many ways. If we're out there naming idols, you think that people aren't going to react in a similar way? About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He gathered together and with the worksmen in similar trades said, men, you know that this business 
In this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Pay attention to the thing that he thinks there is danger in. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, disrespect, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Everything was changing. The idols were put into danger. And Demetrius, he gets it. He gets it. He sees what's coming. Humans are pretty good at knowing when their idols are in danger. He's worried that if Artemis' name is defamed so that Jesus' fame may be extolled, that he will lose his wealth, that he will lose his reputation. But we're pretty familiar with that, aren't we? He and Ephesus had, tried, had tied their identity so inextricably from Artemis, this fake God, that if it was exposed, he would lose not only his wealth, but his identity. His identity was mingled in with this Artemis, this fake God. So he has to do something to protect it. You can see the ego working to preserve itself, to maintain its status, to keep up the lie in Demetrius. But I wonder if you and I can relate. When your idols are in jeopardy, do you spasm? Do you convulse? Do you riot in your heart to try to protect them? Have you examined your heart to see what is it that I'm trying to protect? I wonder if you can relate. Uh, here's what I can tell you. This is what happens so often in my home. My, my wife has a word that she uses with me that she's right to use, and it is rough. When she sees me going down the rabbit hole of like looking at something that I'm going to buy or like whatever, she just goes, man, you're obsessed. And she's right. And like everything inside of my heart just goes, no, no, uh-uh, I'm not upset. You're obsessed. I'm not obsessed, but I am obsessed. And my heart wants to protect this trinket, this idol, this silver fake God that I've started to create in my heart. When my kids expose something through my discomfort, I yell. I'm try- I-, I idolize my comfort and you're making me uncomfortable. You need to stop that right now. I'm spasming, I'm convulsing, I'm trying everything that I can to protect my idol. And I wonder if you're like me. The Ephesians are fighting to keep their idol. They're confused. Everything has been turned upside down. And twice we see in these verses that they end up not knowing what else to do, so they just get together and chant for like two hours. Great is the God Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what they did for like two hours because they're just like, we don't know what to do. These guys are taking away our living, our God. They're doing all of this in the name of this 
powerful Jesus and I don't want it to happen. What can I do? Let's riot. Let's scream out the name of our idol. Maybe that will hush this Paul and this powerful name. But it can't do it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians? No, she is not. People don't follow her anymore. We as human beings have moved on to a million other idols. We've built a million other shrines. It's what we're best at. Our hearts are idol factories. The powerful name of Jesus is greater. And what we need to do is let this name of Jesus upend our social securities and let it be good. Why? Because Jesus is real. Jesus is real. And he loves you. Artemis cannot love. The objects of your affection will not only not love you, they will leave you so hopeless. But the powerful name of Jesus will not leave you dissatisfied. The powerful name of Jesus will heal the soul. It will change a city. The powerful name of Jesus, it it, it just will heal the sickness. It will cast out sin and evil spirits. It will disrupt your life, but it is good. The good news of the gospel is that our Savior has a sweet name, and it's Jesus, and his love is real. Let it be known to all that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation comes by no other name than Jesus. Jesus has the power to save souls and cities. It has the power to heal and to cast out evil. And it has the good power to upend your life and bring you into a loving, real relationship with the God of this universe.